If you are familiar at all with the uh, Wizard of Oz series of books, you know, it's, it's several different books. It's not just the, the one about the wizard. And, and one of uh, those that I, I really listened to with my kids and kind of struck me was called The Patchwork Girl of Oz, and it's about Ojo the Unlucky. Uh, Ojo the Unlucky, one of the reasons why he was unlucky is because his uncle got turned to stone. That's a bad thing to happen. And so he had to go and gather all the ingredients for this, this magical potion in Oz that brings inanimate objects back to life, makes them animated. It's the reason why there's a patchwork girl that's there. It's the reason why the scarecrow uh, is a living scarecrow. And this, this potion was so powerful that it had been outlawed. And they, uh, one of the ingredients for the potion was a magical six-leafed clover that could only be found around the Emerald City of Oz. And so they walked to the Emerald City, and he stole a six-leafed clover, thinking nobody could see him. And of course, the new wizard saw him immediately and had him arrested. He went to jail, and, and his friends were so mad about the injustice of it all, and all he's trying to do is save his uncle's life, and how, how dare this unfair wizard uh, outlaw this. And so they come up with this plan to, to steal the evidence and, and show that he never stolen it at all. And, and the judgment day finally comes, and uh, they've hidden the evidence away, and they're trying to tell him, don't just plead not guilty, just make her prove it, make her prove it. And the judge looks at Ojo the unlucky and says, how do you plead? And he says, guilty, your honor, and I'm so sorry. He said, you see, all I knew was your law. And when all I knew was your law, I didn't know how kind and gracious and compassionate you were. And so all I saw was that this law was unfair and it was preventing me from helping my uncle. But now, since I've spent this time in your prison, I've met your grace. And I know that someone as gracious as you could never institute a law that was unfair. In August, if you are, um, if you're not aware of this, in August what I do every year is take questions from the congregation and try to fashion them into three or four sermons. And then, just so y'all don't let me off the hook, at the end of the sermon, I answer questions that you can text in uh, to the phone number that's on the screen. And uh, the question that I'm trying to tackle this week and next week, which is a very important one, it's a big one, is about exvangelicals. You know, exvangelicals in the world of hashtags. Take two words, ex and evangelical, and jam them together. Hashtag exvangelical. Former uh, Christians, former church people. And the question is, where are they coming from? Why are they leaving? What is it that, that's happening here? These are some, some really significant uh, spiritual leaders from the 90s, from my generation, who've not only uh, abandoned their mega churches, they've abandoned the faith completely. And, and why, why is that going on? And how are they different from evangelicals? And, and part of the answer is going to be that I, I want you to see this is nothing new. It's happened uh, throughout the history of, of Christianity. That uh, one generation tends to go too far in one direction, and then the, the, the response is to go too far in the other direction. And, and this, I think this particular movement might be, this may be a little bit rosy thinking, but... Why not? Let's be optimistic. It might end up being a really important uh, call to the church, much like the Jesus movement of the early 70s uh, that was, ended up being quite a revival. And I think that's 
possible, certainly not yet, but it's possible. Uh, it's a movement that, sh- that shows us a lot of things that are, that are wrong with the church, but also it, it's an overreaction that is wrong in and of itself. And, and so what I want to do today is talk about the heart of the matter, and I want us to, to look at what ex-evangelicals have in common with evangelicals and, and this, how they're both wrong. Now, ex-evangelicals are rebelling against their parents because they see only the rules and not the grace. They see the commitment to Christ, but not the passionate love of Christ. They see the job of being a Christian, but they don't see the joy of being a Christian. What I believe is that ex-evangelicals are rebelling against evangelicals because they've never seen the heart of their father. And in that way, they are exactly like their parents. It's just a different reaction. Neither trust the heart of their father. Neither have experienced the goodness of God. And so they are very similar. They just react differently. And to understand how we're going to come at this, I want to take us back, actually, to the letter that we studied last fall, back to the letter of 1 John. 1 John it may be the first time this question was being asked, really. You know, he was writing to answer this question, what about all the people who are leaving the church? And he starts answering that question in chapter 2, and he says, uh, they, they've gone out from us, but they were never once of us. They were never of us. If they had been of us, they wouldn't have left. But why? Why did they leave? And, and what's the goal? What, what is the faith that was delivered to the saints? What, what is our goal? Let's stand and read from 1 John four sixteen As we examine what is going on, I think, in the church today. What's always been going on in the church? Hear the word of the Lord. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Uh, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. He who does not love his brother for whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all of, his glory, all of our glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. God's word stands forever. You may be seated. It's a very, very old problem, isn't it? Uh, The theological terms are legalism 
belief in the law, and antinomianism. It's a long word. Anti against nomi is the law, just like Deuteronomy is. You probably pronounce it Deuteronomy. Uh, is the second giving of the law against the lawism. The two opposites, right? Two extremes. The Apostle Paul writes to both of them. In the book of Galatians, who's he writing? He's writing the legalists. Those people who said, great, I'm glad you love Jesus, but you also better be circumcised and be kosher and be keeping every letter of the law. In the book of Corinthians, he's writing the antinomians. They were nuts. You think we're antinomian now? They were bragging about having incest in their church. Look how free we are in the gospel. We do anything. It's nothing new. It's always existed. It's this pendulum that swings back and forth. Uh, and, and I think, though, the, the more we really take time to examine them, we see that they both have the same heart. Both have the same heart. So let's talk about them for a second. Legalism, what is it? Legalism is a lot of different names. Evangelicalism, fundamentalism, perfectionism. It's not the belief that you earn your way into heaven by keeping the law. And it's important that you understand this. Nobody, not a single human, claims to be a legalist. Nobody. A legalist is somebody who seeks the protection of doing it right. A legalist is someone who has a frame of spirit that is afraid, that is scared of God, or more likely just scared of life, and believes if I do everything right, everything will go well with me. My children will be safe. And they will be beautiful and perfect and beloved and have great marriages. And I won't get a divorce and I'll never have to have my heart broken. It's this, this, this desire to control the outcome of life by following rules and sometimes by just making rules. And it's, it's, it's bound up in that fear that's why John writes to them and says, there's no fear in love. If you just trust the love of God, there's no fear. But, it, but it's hard for us to believe that. And it, it's scary to believe that. I was asked to come and do a, an in-service for a Christian school in Oklahoma City. And during the, in the, the headmaster knew me and he knew the school and he felt like I was what they need, which is a frightening thought. And uh, he said, I want you to come in and, and just give them pure grace. And I'm like, really? He said, yes, I mean, just pour it down their throats. So uh, three sermons uh, uh, on the grace of God, the lavish, overwhelming, just, just giddy love of God that he pours out on his children, and the questions started coming. And I'll never forget, she was sitting right there. If we do this, if we teach this, then our kids are going to ruin their lives. They're just going to go out and sin. And my response was, well, your kids are going to sin anyway. The question is, when they do, do you want them to come to you for help? Because they know with you they're going to find grace? Or do you want them to run away and hide from you? That's the real issue. That's the only issue we have. 
But what was she doing? She was afraid. She wasn't mean. She wasn't thinking, I'm going to make my children miserable with the law. Of course not. She was afraid. We're all afraid. And she believed that she just did it right. If I just do it right, then everything will be safe. But the the real issue that the the ex-evangelicals seem to be just swinging so hard against... uh, they, they call, and I think it's a fairly accurate term, the purity culture. You remember the purity culture? Those, those my age do. You know, it was the I kiss dating goodbye culture. It was the, the purity rings culture. It was the master bands culture. It was the, you know, see no evil, hear no evil, think no evil culture. And what was it, what was it in response to? It was in response to this outbreak of divorce that had come through the 70s and the 80s. And, and in the 90s, parents, they wanted to know absolutely sure. They wanted to protect their children from ever having their heart broken. And if you can just, if you will just be a virgin till you get married, your heart will not be broken. And that resulted in all kinds of leftover grief. And it wasn't true. It didn't work. But it did create a lot of shame and repression that has now spilled over into anger. Uh, Anger because it didn't work. You see, the Lord, the, the, the legalist doesn't trust God. He sees God as a harsh taskmaster. And if I can just do it right, I'll be safe. I can't trust God to be good. I can't trust God to be gracious. I can't trust God to, to receive me back if I step out of line. And they all act like traumatized children, afraid of their father instead of in love with him. I... Uh, <laughs> I watched me and my wife. We we found we are always kind of looking for uh, sitcoms that nobody else watches, and I, uh, I I've seen every sitcom that's come out of Canada. I don't know what it is about Canada. My sense of humor in theirs is just right down the middle, and one of them is called Kim's Convenience. It's about a Korean family raising a uh, running a convenience store in Toronto, and there's this episode where. The father is having his conversation with a man who's just had a divorce, and he's talking to him about the divorce, and the man says to him, marriage is hard, Mr. Kim. He goes, oh, it's so hard. The hardest thing I've ever done. And his wife walks in just as he's saying this, and she goes, what's so hard? And the man looks at her and goes, marriage. And she goes, oh, marriage is hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And they look at each other, and both of them at the same time say, why is it hard for you? You're not married to you. And that's, that's kind of the attitude. Y'all, y'all know people like that, right? Every time marriage comes up, it's like, man, it's so hard. Okay, first of all, if that's you, stop it. Your wife doesn't want you going around broadcasting to everybody in the world how hard it is to be married to her. That's it, not great. But for a lot of us, that's how we feel, right? There's no passion. There's no joy. There's no pleasure. There's no confidence. There's no warmth. There's no at-homeness. It's just task. Do it right. And that's, that's how we feel about God. That's the legalist frame of spirit. What, what's the antinomian? What's the evangelical spirit? It's ultimately the exact same thing. They, they live in anger at God, but they also live in anger at their parents. 
Some of them want to party. Some of them are just experiencing the freedom of being out from under the, the chains and the lies for the first time. They don't trust God, and so they just run away from him. The legalist don't, doesn't trust God, and so we, they obey him in hopes of, of getting a reward one day. The antinomian just says, forget it. And sometimes that's because they realize that their parents have been lying to them. Uh, I had a great, a good friend in college, big guy, uh, and just uh, hilarious. And uh, I met him as a senior when uh, he was a counselor at a Christian camp and a great, you know, good believer. And he kind of discipled me in a lot of ways. But he would always tell me stories about his freshman, sophomore, and junior years when he failed out of college because he did nothing but party. And I said, well, what happened? How, what, what, this doesn't compute. And he said, well, I grew up in this very Christian home in Montgomery, Alabama. We were very strict. And I was told all my life how, you know, alcohol is terrible. And then by the second week at college, some friends snuck rum into my Coke. And they got me drunk unbeknownst to me. And it was fun. And I realized my parents had been lying to me. And so I just ditched everything they had told me. And there's, there's some of that in, in the antinomian movement. This, this desire just to, to get out from under the lies and experience everything that their parents told them not to. But that's not all of it. It really isn't. A, a lot of people, in the ex-van- a lot of ex-evangelicals are motivated by love for people that their parents hated. And I'm going to have to take a second to explain that. Um, if you grow up, grew up in the evangelical community lately, the, the, the chief enemy, the enemy that, you know, from, I don't know who the leading spokesmen are anymore, but the, the, the family-oriented people, that the enemy that they're, they're terribly afraid of, afraid is going to just wreck culture in the entire world is the gay rights community. And they're, they're at war with them. And a lot of kids grow up in families that are at war with them. And then they meet a gay man or a gay woman and they're not evil. And they don't know what to do with that. And they love this person. And it's not what their parents told them it was going to be. And so they, they feel like they're in this, this vice where they have to either reject their parents or hate this person. And they know that God doesn't want them to hate this person. And so they end up rejecting the faith completely. And the, the problem with the antinomian ex-evangelical movement is in the very act of throwing off everything that is wrong, and, and I we're going to talk about this next week a lot. There's a lot of things that need to be thrown off. In the very act of throwing off everything that is wrong, they've thrown themselves into chaos. They, they don't understand the law of God as a gift to enable you to enjoy creation. Um, when I was a kid, I grew up and went over to Randy Davis's house. He, for some whatever reason, he's the subject of a lot of my illustrations. I guess I was just that age. And our favorite thing to do was play football. And there was a particular place in the yard we always loved to play, where the grass was the greenest, where the ground was the softest, and where you were, it was the easiest to get muddy. 
And, uh, you know, if you're a little like me and you were going to get tackled a lot, you wanted soft ground. So we always played, yeah, over the septic tank. And finally, just to, they, they kept telling us, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there. But every, it was where the grass was the greenest, it was where the ground was the softest. And so they built a hedge around the septic tank so that we would not play in sewage. And we were so mad. We didn't want that hedge. It was in the way. It made our football field smaller. You're just trying to keep us from having fun. No, we're trying to keep you out of the hospital. Don't play in sewage. And, and that's, that's what God has done with his hedges. He's actually m- made our playground bigger in some ways by showing us exactly where the law is, where the free place to play is. And he's telling us that sometimes an act done in love is actually the wrong thing to do. But we don't see that. All we see is the prohibition. All we see is the prohibition. You see, both the legalist and the antinomian, both the evangelical and the exvangelical, believe that are, are being told the same lie that Eve was told, and they are believing it the same way that she did. What did Satan do when he came up to Eve? He said, has God really told you that you can't eat from any of these trees? He put you in the middle of a garden and he told you you couldn't eat? And the seed of suspicion was planted. Did he? No, he didn't do that. He told us not to eat from the tree in the middle. Oh. He doesn't want you to do that because that's the good one. He wants to save the good one for himself. He doesn't want you to be like him. And that suspicion grows so that the only tree Eve was able to see after that was the tree that was forbidden. It became her obsession. It was beautiful and it was desirable. And she ate it and it tastes good. And all of us believe that lie to some level. We believe that God is withholding from us what is good. We believe that, that that's, that's his nature. His nature is to withhold. And we respond to it differently. Some of us respond to it by getting angry and running as far away as possible. Others of us respond to it by obeying and, and trying to... to force his hands open by, by being so good, but we're, so, we're all just twins separated at birth. There's no difference. We all have the same distrust of God in our heart. We're all trying to separate the character of God from the love of God. We're trying to separate the character of God from the law of God. What did, why did I have that call to worship? What does God do before he rewrites the law, before he engraves the Ten Commandments on stone? He wants to tell everybody, this is who I am, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's who I am. Don't see this law separated from who I am. Don't do that. This law is the gift of the God who is compassionate and gracious. Don't separate them. Ultimately, we're all acting like traumatized children, traumatized by the the withholding nature of God. When I was a kid, 
you know, we didn't have, uh, well, we didn't have anything. All, all we had was paper and uh, catalogs, right? And every Christmas, around, right around the middle of November, the wish book, the Sears wish book would come, and it was, had 20 good pages of toys at the back. And my favorite activity, especially on Saturdays, was to lay in the living room floor and circle those things in that wish book and just look at the toys that I wanted Santa to bring me. And I remember one night, my dad walked in, and he had lit up his Saturday night cigarette and took his boots off and pushed back in his recliner. He said, you see anything in that book you want? Said, well, yeah. Well, come show me. And I jumped up in the recliner next to him and started pointing to things. He said, anything else? Yeah, this, this, anything else? Yeah, that, that, that. I mean, my tongue was getting dry, and I was just so excited. And finally, he's like, is that all? I think, yeah, that's it. He took my little face, and he put it right in front of his, and he said, you'll get none of it! Not a thing! You weren't good enough. Now, my dad didn't do that. No dad would do that. You know that anybody who would do that would be a monster. But you think God has done that. You honestly think that God has surrounded you with things that you can't have. And he constantly looks at you and says, all the other kids get it, but you can't because you're not good enough. That is the, the, the root belief in our hearts. And both of us, both the legalists and the uh, antinomian, both the evangelical and the ex-evangelical, need to taste the extravagant grace of God. What does the legalist need? Look at 1 John chapter 4. Look at the, the first part of the passage I gave you. What does he need? He needs to know that the love of God is perfected with us. We need to know that there's no fear in love, that perfect love casts out fear, that fear has to do with punishment, and we don't have to fear punishment. We need to know that we love because he loved us. What do we need? We need to be overwhelmed with the passionate joy of God. What do we need? We need the devastating grace of God in the midst of failure. The, the, the legalist needs the devastating grace of God in the midst of failure. What do I mean? I mean, the legalist has to fail. You will. And in that failure, taste the grace of God. There's this odd little uh, movie called Chocolate. Not too many people saw it. And Juliette Binoche in it. And uh, she was this woman who came to this small, odd little town that uh, was very legalistic. And she came in the middle of Lent. And on the first day of Lent, she opened a chocolate shop. And everybody was supposed to give up sweets for Lent, of course. And she lived right across the street from this man who was trying to lead a moral crusade to get this town back on the straight and narrow. And he was trying to renovate people's uh, culture, renovate their, their character. And she's selling chocolate. And he gets angrier and angrier, and they become huge rivals throughout the city. Everybody knows that they are the main rivals. And, um, and then there's this scene toward the end where the veil is let back, and you see why he's doing this. You see 
him get a letter from his wife. The whole movie, you're wondering where his wife is. Why is his wife gone? And he gets a letter from her, his wife that he wants back so desperately. And she asks him to send her the rest of his clothes, her clothes. She's not coming back. And he begins cursing God. After all I've done for you, you can't do this one thing for me after all I've done for you. And he storms out into the street and he sees the chocolate shop and he crushes the window and he goes in and he starts breaking up all the chocolate desserts and busting them up and he hits one of them and a piece of chocolate flies back and lands on his lip and he hasn't had sugar in two months. And all you know, you can feel it, right? All those endorphins start going off in his head. He's like, oh my gosh, that's the good stuff. And he starts just cramming chocolate into his mouth with both hands. And he goes into this sugar coma and falls asleep right in the midst of all the chocolate. And the next morning, the woman walks in. And she sees all the damage that he's done. And she sees all the chocolate all over his face and hands. And he wakes up covered in shame. And she winks at him and says, I won't tell a soul. Feel that failure of your perfection. That feel that failure of trying to twist God's arm. And to receive grace there is devastating. But it's the only way to know joy. It's the only way to know joy. It's the only way to have your, your love cast out all the fear you have of life. And the question for those of us who tend toward legalism is, have you been devastated by grace? Has the act of God's forgiveness devastated your ability to think that you can control life? What does the ex-evangelical need? The ex-evangelical needs to be devastated by God's law. He needs to see that ignoring God's law leads to death. I hate that. You know, it's kind of like, like the prodigal son when he's out of money and no one is kind to him and no one is gracious to him and he has to go and feed pigs. He has to come to the end of himself. And it says in the text, he came to himself and realized my father's slaves have it better than this. You have to come to the end. And in the, at the end, realize that God's character was always loving. It was always gracious. And, and as your pastor, what I want for you is to, to save you from either one. I don't want you to be devastated. I really don't. I don't want you to be devastated to see your, your perfectionism come to its natural end, and I don't want you to be devastated by seeing where your rebellion come to its natural end. I want you to see Jesus devastated on the cross for you. I want you to see the, the end of rebellion in that death. I want you to see the end of perfection in that death. I want you to see that if you were able to be perfect on your own, then he wouldn't have had to die for you in the first place. I want you to see that God is not a God of withholding. He's a giving God. 
who, who gives his son for you. I, don't want, I want you to see that God is not a God who wants to make marriage to him the hardest thing you've ever done. I want you to see that he's pursuing you and he's passionate for you and that he loves you. I don't want you to, see that, I don't want you to believe that God is ashamed of you. I want you to see Jesus presenting you before the throne of God with exceeding great joy. I want you to see Jesus praying in John 17, Father, I don't want to be in heaven without them. The only thing I ask is that they would be with me, with you. In me like I'm in you. I want you to see the joy. See the pursuing love of Christ. See the law kept for you, fulfilled in all of his goodness. It's a lot better than you being devastated. But even if that happens, you can tell me. I won't tell a soul. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you because you are the giving, loving, passionate, beautiful God. And I pray, Lord, that everyone who hears this message would hear the music, would hear you dancing, would know you as the very source of joy of everything that is right. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see how I do. got some good ones. I'm going to start actually with the last one I got because I find it the most interesting. Um, but well, there's two that are really good and there are two that I'm going to answer next week. So we'll do it that way. Um, but I'll try to answer all if we have time. All right, this, this one I think is interesting. Uh, if an antinomian hears the crushing message of the law, won't they still reject God's law? If they hear the crushing message of God's grace, won't they say thank you and continue on their path? Do they need both messages? Um, and, and I, I probably said this wrong, but what unfortunately ends up happening and pretty much has to happen if you've gone too far down the path for someone who's rejected God's law is you don't hear the message, you feel the message. You, you wake up. At what you know, what an, an alcoholic calls with a moment of clarity, uh, you, you hit bottom, and you see where a life of living God's law is not just this arbitrary list, right? We've talked about this. This is how life works, and a life that is lived in rebellion to that is going to end in um, in ruin. And so, typically. Um, all of us, whether you tend to be more legalistic or more antinomian, we all don't hear any message until our life ends up in ruins. Um, the, the, and the, the, what it's, the only difference is how it looks. So a legalistic life in ruins is when I've tried to do everything right, and yet I didn't get the safety, the, the life that I thought I was going to get. The, the antinomian life in ruins is when you've done everything wrong, and you've realized you're an alcoholic now or your um, sexual immorality has led to every relationship you're in being destroyed or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so that's what I mean by it's more an issue of feeling the, the crushing message that living outside of these hedges leads to death uh, than just hearing it. So um, and that at that point, what, you know, you, you begin to... St- your view of the Father 
changes and you no longer see him as um, trying to ruin your joy, you see him as the only source of life. Um, and you're ready to receive that, that help. I hope that's helpful. Um, next question. I would say quite a few evangelicals. Sorry, I'll read slower. Are leaving the church because the law has not evolved with the current worldview as opposed to more of rejecting Jesus? Do you think the church as a whole needs to update their views of the world to invite and welcome more people in? Um, yes and no. I think there are definitely, and, and that's what I mean by when I started, I said I think there's some good things that are coming out of this movement. There are definitely good things that the ex-evangelicals are pointing out. They're pointing out the harm of the purity culture, for one thing. They're pointing out harmful things within the church. And they are going to cause us to have to evaluate ourselves and say, okay, well, we, we need to change this and that. Um, and, and that's what I'm going to talk about more next week as we examine uh, when Jesus uh, looks at the Pharisees and says, you, you teach as commandments of God the traditions of men. And uh, I think that every, every generation has to really deal with that verse of Scripture and say, okay, what are the traditions of men that we've made into commandments of God? And so that's, uh, honestly, I, I'm not ready to go in there yet because I haven't done uh, the painful reflection that I'm going to have to do this week uh, to ask that. Um, our culture demands perfection. Yes, it does. It is an extremely perfectionistic culture. Uh, in work, family, friendships, appearance, parenting, uh, physical uh, strength, money. You have to look good and feel good and do good and be good. Uh, yeah, absolutely. How do we avoid legalism when the pay-to-play of our culture is perfection? And I, 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 my answer is you just refuse to pay it. It's not working out for them either. Um, you know, and, and as we do that, as, re, as we refuse to get caught up in that form of evaluation, hopefully more and more we'll be seen as an oasis, uh, a place for people to be imperfect, a place for people to be received as the, as the wrecks that they are. Uh, it's important for us to not project a, a perfect life of Christianity or, perfect, or project that we have things it's important for us to not project lies, is the truth, right? Which means we don't uh, project ourselves as having everything straight and perfect, because you don't. I know you. And, um, and so that's, that's hopefully our goal, is to be a place of, of grace in a world of perfection. So, yeah, just don't play it. That's easy for me to say, I guess. I don't know, some of y'all might, you know, might mean missing a job or something. How can parents raise children in such a way that they and we don't fall into either ditch? Why am I laughing? Lisa, why am I laughing? <laughs> uh, just tell me how to do it right. <laughs> just tell me how to do it right so I don't want to... Uh, so I'll do it right. No. It's uh, you do your best and you sin before your children and you confess your sins to your children and you apologize to your children and you teach them the gospel and you wait for them to mess up and they're going to probably do whatever you've done they're probably going to be a lot like you um, that's why you're the perfect parent for them and so just grow in your knowledge and, and, 
and joy and warmth of your relationship with the Lord. And uh, I, you don't want parent, parenting advice from me. That's my kids. Um, last question. How do we know which legalistic Legalistic is not the right term. How do we know which of the Old Testament laws God desires us to follow and which can be discarded? There's a lot to that. We did a whole series on the Ten Commandments, and we talked about that at the beginning of it. But uh, just to give you a brief breakdown, there's three categories of laws in the Old Testament. There are the civil laws, which are how society was to be run. And in those, we kind of look at them and go, okay, well, that doesn't make sense. I don't have to worry about building a, a... turret on my roof because nobody's going to sleep on my roof and roll off and die. Uh, what does that mean? We, we, look at, we look for just kind of um, parallels, and that means I need to keep my property safe, so I need to build a fence around my swimming pool. Uh, you know, we kind of look at that, but that's the civil laws, and then you have sa- uh, sa- ceremonial laws or sacrificial laws, and those are all the laws about uncleanliness and uh, sacrifices, and all of those have been fulfilled. They're not thrown away, they're fulfilled in Jesus so that he has made us clean. So we don't, have to, we don't have to deal with those anymore. We learn from them all the ways that Jesus has made us clean, but we're, we're clean, and so we don't have to follow the, those, and that's where all the kosher laws are and things like that. And then there's the moral law, and the moral law is summarized by the Ten Commandments. And the moral law is, um, is, is God's way of saying, this is how I designed you to run break this at your own risk. You are playing in a sewer if you break this. And those laws uh, are the laws that are summarized by the law of love, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You know, the first four commandments, no foreign gods, no images of God. Um, Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't uh, remember him one day in seven. Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself. Honor your father and mother. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie and don't covet. Uh, that's how you do that, right? If we're just left to ourselves and say, you know, go love your neighbor. Well, it's going to be like, um, like a child uh, seeing you cry and bringing you a, a blankie, right? Because that's what the child would want. He, want he's doing, he was doing for you what he would want you to do for him. But you don't want a blankie, right? You need, you need something else. And so... Uh, the, 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 what the law is there for is to tell us how to love our brothers. So, all right, that's the best I can do. Please stand.